Did you know a 2018 study showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual. When I was four months pregnant, I couldn't find a prenatal I could trust, so I created my own. Ours is made traceable, third-party tested for heavy metals, and recently earned the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. But don't just take my word for it. Get 25% off at virtual.com slash podcast. Imagine you're a young man born near the end of the 16th century in northeastern North America in a region that your people refer to as Dawnland. You were born and raised in a village of perhaps a few thousand people who are known as the Patuxet in a wonderfully situated location with easy access to rich estuaries, woods, and forests, and through a combination of agriculture, hunting, and fishing, your people are able to live a good life by the standards of this time and place, without ever having to roam very far from home. Your people are part of a regional confederation known as the Wampanoag, and they do have enemies in the neighborhood, and there are occasional wars, but they tend to be relatively short-lived, and usually not very bloody when they do happen. As you're growing up, Weird-looking, strange-talking, exotic foreigners will occasionally come by in a large boat. These people are smaller and less well-built than your own people. They have a lot of facial hair and look weird and wear strange clothing. And they smell bad, apparently not coming from a society that emphasizes hygiene quite as much as yours does. But they do have intriguing goods that you've never seen before, and so from time to time your leaders have allowed some of these foreigners to visit and trade, but they never let them stay for very long. But then one day, when you're a young man, these foreigners shanghai you and a bunch of others, and ship you across the vast ocean back to their homeland. You end up living for years in one of the white people's great cities, and there you gradually learn to speak their language which is English, quite well. When you do finally make it back in a very roundabout way to your homeland years later, by this time you're probably in your 30s, you return to discover that your people, and in fact most of the neighboring peoples as well, have been almost entirely wiped out by sicknesses that have ravaged the area in the years you were absent. In other words, your home area is almost entirely depopulated. Then you see some of these English people moving into the former site of your village. They're different from other groups of these people you've seen before, though, because these English have women and children among them. And as you watch, you notice they're obviously very sick and malnourished and not doing very well. Eventually, you'll be part of a Wampanoag effort to ally with these people, and you'll be in an awkward spot as an outsider ultimately in both communities, distrusted by your own people, and never fully accepted by the whites, despite teaching them the skills they need to survive in this land and generally developing a positive relationship with them. But you'll always be an outsider. You'll do your best to try to leverage that status, situated as you are on kind of the edge of two cultures. And like many other less well-known people in the colonial era in the New World, you'll do your best to use your position as middleman, as a person with one foot in each of two very different cultures, to your best advantage. Eventually, the Wampanoag leadership will suspect you of plotting against them, and you will have to rely on your English friends to shield you from them. And after all this, 
you'll get sick and die, only about two years after meeting these so-called pilgrims. You'll be probably in your late 30s or early 40s when this happens. The name you go by in your native language refers to the divine rage of the Manitou. Your name is Tisquantum, but you'll be better known to history as Squanto. Ross Ulbricht was sentenced to life in prison for operating the Silk Road. But that's not the end of the story. Ross is trying to get out, but he needs your help. The free Rossathon is happening Sunday, December 4th from 2 to 10 p.m. Eastern, featuring Roger Ver, Cody Wilson, Doug Casey, Tom Woods, and dozens of equally seditious speakers. Go to freeross.org right now and register for this free event. It's a fundraiser for Ross's appeal, so prepare to be inspired. freeross.org. That's freeross.org. CJ here with a holiday-tinged helping of hazardous history, at least holiday-tinged to those of us like myself who live in the piece of dirt currently referred to as the United States. I know many other countries have Thanksgiving or something along those lines, and it's often in the fall-ish, but it's not when the United States celebrates it, but whatever. I'm tying in a piece of American history to this season So, this is episode 126 of the Dangerous History Podcast, The Story of Squanto. And I actually got this episode done and out a bit later than I had originally planned and hoped. I was really struggling to get this thing out by the American Thanksgiving Day, but due to A, how hugely long the listener emails episode I did the other day was running, and as a result, how long it took me to make and edit and and all that with that, And then B, the fact that Thanksgiving this year, my participation in it was hosted at my own house, and I ended up running very behind on this as a result. Now, I didn't have people actually staying overnight at my house, but I have my mother and stepfather in town at their own place. Then I have my sister and her family staying with them. And then, of course, I have my mother-in-law who lives near us full-time anyway. And all converging upon my humble little hobbit house that I live in for Thanksgiving. So I ended up being quite strapped for time and opportunity as all that went down while I was still putting the finishing touches on the listener emails episode. But I was determined to try and, at least if I could, get this done and out while it was still technically Thanksgiving weekend in America. So, I'll have to settle for that. And I have to say, another thing that slowed me down on producing this is I got bogged down a little bit more, perhaps a lot more, than I expected to in the details of this story, which, as I dug into it, turned out to be more complex than I expected, in part because there are different versions of this story... And it's not always possible to know for sure which one is the truth, if any. So I spent more time reading different accounts of Squanto's life and trying to sift through the details and trying to compare different versions with each other than I expected to do. So in other words, this is yet another story where the sources are far from solid and the exact truth about every detail of the story simply can't be known for certain in all cases. 
but I'm going to do my best, as I always do in those situations, to try to acknowledge the differing versions and the differing possible details on the story, while at the same time trying not to get too bogged down in that, and still having a narrative, having a story that keeps moving, and so hopefully entertains as well as educates. But before I get back into that story, I do have some gratitude to express. And first, I have Patreon shoutouts. Big thanks to Express to Chad, John, Amy, and Eric. Thank you all very much for stepping up to support this show over at patreon.com slash profcj. And just as a reminder to everybody listening, if you sign up to support this show with a donation of $1 per episode or more over at Patreon, You'll have access to special bonus episodes that I make there that are available nowhere else. And in addition, you'll be eligible to join the private Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors Facebook group if you so desire. And I also have a couple of Amazon wishlist thank yous for folks kind enough to have gotten me things off my DHP Amazon wishlist. And big thanks go to Ken for ordering me Buckminster Fuller's Universe. He's a guy I intend on eventually doing an episode on in the future. Buckminster Fuller is just a fascinating character in a lot of ways, and I don't know as much about him as I would like to, so part of my desire to do an episode on him is that I don't know really that much detail about him other than the basics. And also thanks, and in this case, I'm not 100% sure if this is from Ken or not, so if it was from you as well, Ken, thanks for that, and if it wasn't, thanks to my mystery benefactor. It was a used book, so um, when you order a used book from Amazon, generally you can't include a note to the person that you're sending it to as a gift. But anyway, it is the book Revolutions, Theoretical, Comparative, and Historical Studies, a book that I've been very excited to read ever since I found out about it relatively recently. So... Again, if it was also from you, Ken, thank you. And if it wasn't, thanks to whoever it was who ordered this book for me. I very much appreciate it. Okay, so back to our story of Squanto and kind of the major events surrounding his life. Wampanoag meant people of the first light, and it was a reference to their eastern location. They were closer to where the sun came up at dawn than the more inland tribes. And the Wampanoag were a confederation of communities on the eastern edge of what today we know as... Massachusetts. There actually was an Indian nation known as the Massachusetts who lived north of the Wampanoag, and most of the Indians of the region spoke a dialect of the Massachusetts language, which is of the Algonquin family, if I'm not mistaken. And the dialects in the different groups in this region, they were distinct from each other, but they were closely enough related that they could understand each other. Historically, the Wampanoag had been allies of the Massachusetts for a long time, and also with the Nauset of Cape Cod. And their main rival were the Narragansett to the west, and also sometimes some other inland tribes that were allied to the Narragansett. Before the arrival of Europeans, and perhaps even more importantly of European diseases, the region that eventually came to be known as New England was densely populated by native peoples. However, by the time the English began kind of really seriously colonizing the region on a large scale and, and with permanent intentions, by that time the coastal areas had already been heavily depopulated by epidemics. Europeans began poking around New England in various ways for a bit more than a century before the pilgrims actually showed up, trading, raiding, fishing, and so on. 
And during this time, nobody established any permanent settlements on the New England coast, in part because it was so densely populated with natives who did have the means to keep them out. They didn't have all the same technologies as the Europeans, but nonetheless, they had pretty high numbers, and they had sufficient technologies and fighting skills that, using their home court advantage, the Europeans really couldn't impose themselves into their territory by force. And it's going to be only later, after diseases have gone through and done the preliminary work, that European colonists will find it possible to establish permanent communities in this area. Now, one of the reasons that the natives distrusted the Europeans and did their best to limit their contact with them during this time period was that the Europeans would sometimes take captives. And we have accounts of this periodically over the course of the 16th century. As early as 1501, the Portuguese explorer Gaspar Corte Real took 50 captives from the region that today we know as Maine. Other visitors repeated this practice, often grabbing some Indians, basically to bring back to Europe as kind of souvenirs or curiosities. I mean, it's really kind of disturbing to read about, and these were just mainstream attitudes amongst Europeans at the time, that there was not much, if any, moral qualm about grabbing an Indian and just taking him back with you to sort of show off as a curiosity, maybe eventually kind of make him a butler in your house or something, but to show off to your friends... And it strikes me very much as being almost the same attitude that people would have in more recent times to, like, grabbing a few wild animals to bring back and put in a zoo or something. There's not much thought given to what these Indians themselves would have wanted and whether or not they really wanted to be shanghai to the other side of the world to an alien culture. And perhaps even more disturbing is how frequent the Indians who were grabbed were youngsters or even children. For example, we know that Giovanni de Verrazzano kidnapped an eight-year-old boy when he came through the area to bring home as a, just a nifty souvenir, you know? Now, the natives of coastal New England, including the Wampanoag, were often happy to engage in trade with the Europeans, who had goods, especially things like metal tools and weapons, that the Indians valued, but that they couldn't make for themselves. And the Europeans greatly valued a lot of goods that the Indians had in abundance, such as pelts and things like that. And so there could be some pretty good trade. But the Indians in these interactions were always sure to keep the English from staying around too long. And we have accounts of them being kind of, you know, forced back onto their ships if they overstayed their welcome. And of Indians often imposing limitations as to how many, Indian, how many uh, Europeans could come ashore and come into their villages to do business with them. The coastal Indians leveraged this relationship with Europeans for their own benefit as best they could, and they kind of used their access to European goods as leverage with the more inland Indians. They were kind of the gatekeepers. And author Charles Mann puts it this way in his book 1491, quote, The shoreline groups had put themselves in the position of classic middlemen, overseeing both European access to Indian products and Indian access to European products. End quote. However, just a few years before the pilgrims came to the area to found a permanent white settlement, disease swept through and wiped out the majority of the population in the coastal areas. From the point of view of the Indians who survived this, it really was what survivalists today would call Tiatwaki, or the end of the world as we know it. 
But the young man who'd be known to history as Squanto wasn't there when this happened. So let's talk a little bit more about Squanto's backstory. Tisquantum, or Squanto as he's more commonly known to history, was born sometime in the 1580s or 1590s in the Patuxet community on the site of which the English colonists would later build the settlement they called Plymouth. Seemingly reputable sources disagree as to whether Squanto may have actually been abducted by British sailors just once or multiple times over his lifetime. Now, the sources that don't talk about potential earlier abductions, they simply don't bring it up at all. It's not like they bring it up and they discount it and they say, oh yeah, there's this uh, indication in some sources that Squanto may have been nabbed even earlier and then been nabbed again later in life when he was returning to North America. Um, The sources that don't talk about this potential earlier abduction simply don't mention it at all, which really makes me wonder. But the sources that do mention two abductions seem to have a lot of specific detail, and this seems to make it more credible. But again, I'm simply not sure at this point exactly which variation of Squanto's life story is the correct one. According to the version of the story in which Squanto was actually abducted more than once, in 1605, Squanto was one of several young Indians who were taken by English explorer George Weymouth and sent back to England, ultimately to the custody of Ferdinando Gorges, who was the British proprietor of the colony of Maine, and I think later, if not already, became the head of the Plymouth Company. So he was like a colonizer, businessman sort of a guy. And as far as I know, he never personally set foot in North America. But for a while in the early 17th century, he was heavily involved in a lot of the enterprise of colonizing across the Atlantic. Now, the root of this version of the story that Squanto first got nabbed at a younger age in 1605 seems to be based on reference in some documents from Weymouth and Gorges that one of the Indian boys, we know that they grabbed a certain number of young Indians and took them back to England. And they list the names and one of the names is Tisquantum. So I guess it seems that proponents of the version in which Squanto was uh, first abducted in 1605, they're basing it on this, and they're assuming that the same Tisquantum is, that it's the same guy, the guy who's mentioned in 1605 being nabbed by the English, and then the guy that later the pilgrims deal with, and so on. And is it the same guy for sure? I haven't been able to ascertain that. I don't know. I don't know if there's other references somewhere that indicate, yes, this definitely is the same guy. Also, I honestly don't know how common of a name Tisquantum may or may not have been among the Wampanoags. So I don't know. It seems like it might very likely have been the same guy. But can I say for 100% absolutely certain? No, no, I can't. Now, there's not much, even in this version of the story, about what exactly Squanto may have been doing between 1605 and 1614. If he was in English custody this whole time, likely he would have been learning some English so that he could communicate with the heads of the English colonial enterprise and possibly also giving them kind of intelligence and so on about um, local geography and and the politics of the area so that they could better organize colonizing expeditions. But we simply don't have any detail about what exactly he was up to. Now, while in England, Squanto was taught some English and seems to have been being 
groomed and trained and prepared to act as an interpreter and guide accompanying future British expeditions. And according to this version of his story, Suanto was eventually allowed to return home, possibly accompanying another British expedition that was involved in trade and exploration and so on. Now, according to versions of the story in which Squanto was only abducted once, a little bit later in life, according to this version, in 1614, when Squanto was, depending on exactly when he was born, perhaps in his late 20s or early 30s, a ship that was captained by the famous John Smith of Virginia fame came through the area. And John Smith was headed back to England when he left his lieutenant, a guy named Thomas Hunt, behind in Maine, kind of on his own. And according to this version of the story, unbeknownst to Smith, Smith had not signed off on this action. Hunt was kind of going off the reservation. Hunt went down on his own to Massachusetts and visited the Patuxet village. And while there, he invited some of them to come aboard his ship and supposedly a group of several dozen, including Squanto, They went out there, and once they were on, the crew tried to force them into the ship's cargo hold, and the Indians fought back. The English used firearms and killed several of them, and then forced the remaining 19 of them into the hold of the ship and sailed them back to Europe. Now, this abduction that happened in 1614 is mentioned in all of the sources, so the veracity of the story that Squanto was in some fashion abducted to England, or back to England perhaps, in 1614 is not under question, but the earlier abduction, again, is the one that's in some sources but not others. And the one thing that may not be true, if the version of the story in which Squanto is first abducted in 1605 actually is the correct one, then it seems unlikely that the details of how he was abducted in 1614 are correct, because if in fact he'd already been abducted by the English once, it seems at least to me unlikely that he'd have been gullible enough to go out to visit an English ship like it says he supposedly did. The versions of the story with two abductions say that Squanto was, in fact, actually on his way back to Patuxet, perhaps even accompanying John Smith, when Thomas Hunt somehow abducted him after Smith left. And anyway, regardless of exactly how, we do know that Squanto ended up as part of a group of Indians captured in the hold of Thomas Hunt's ship, and Hunt brought Squanto and the other captives to Spain in order to try and sell them for a good price as slaves. But Spanish friars managed to free them. At the time, the Catholic clergy in Spain was under the influence of reformers like Bartolome de las Casas, working to try to improve the European treatment of Indians. They had become staunch critics in particular of the violence directed against the Indians and also of the practice of enslaving them. However, interestingly, they had much less in the way of qualms regarding the use of African slaves. And in fact, some of these reformers, who seemed like such great humanitarians on the issue of Indians' rights, were in fact big-time supporters and boosters of increasing the African slave trade in order to take up the slack in the labor needs in the New World that would be created by decreasing the enslavement of Indians. So anyway, it's very complicated. But these... uh, Catholic Spanish friars somehow managed to get Squanto and his compatriots out of custody, and some sources suggest that while he was in the custody of the Spanish friars, he may have been instructed in Catholicism 
but other sources don't say anything about this, so who knows. Somehow Squanto managed to get from Spain to England, where he ended up working for, in what seems to have been almost kind of an indentured servant relationship, a merchant and shipbuilder named John Slaney, who seems to have been a relatively benevolent guy based on what's mentioned of him in the sources. And Squanto worked for Slaney in London for several years. And while working for him, Squanto, again, depending on which version of the story that you're looking at, either learned English for the first time or became much more fluent in it than he had previously been, if you believe the other version of the story. And either way, by the time after several years he left Slaney in London, Squanto was pretty fluent in English whether he had previously known much of it or not. In 1619, Squanto returned to Massachusetts in the company of an expedition led by an Englishman named Thomas Dermer. That seems to be pretty clearly established, although I have to say there's even a version of the story in which there are actually a total of three abductions of Squanto by Englishmen. There's a version in which, in addition to the first abduction in 1605 and the second abduction in 1614, Squanto was then on his way home in 1618, but was grabbed by the British again and sent back to England, but then quickly allowed to return back to America. Um, Other versions of the story have him returning to America, but only making it as far as Newfoundland in 1617, and then having to go back to Britain for some reason, and maybe to ask permission to officially go back to Patuxet, or maybe to find a ship that would take him all the way to Massachusetts, because Newfoundland and Massachusetts doesn't seem very far today, but back then it's a journey of, what, a thousand miles or close to it, something like that. And Squanto, of course, would have been on foot with more than a few hostile Indians in between him and his destination. So one way or another, Squanto did manage to eventually get back to Massachusetts in 1619. And overall, it seemed that Squanto was mostly treated pretty well while in English custody. Obviously, other than the fact that he had involuntarily been kidnapped to begin with, of course. And the only possible instances in which he may have been treated inhumanely for a time would have been while he was in Hunt's custody en route to Spain. And of course, if the earlier kidnapping story is true, then it's likely he hadn't been treated well in that instance either. But from what we can tell, at least, Squanto seems not to have fostered any kind of across-the-board hatred of all whites or even all Englishmen. And it seems to me likely that in his travels, what had happened was he had interacted with both good and bad white folks and had learned kind of their ways and their language and so on. And so perhaps he just simply came to see them as fellow humans in the sense of there are good ones and there are bad ones, in the same way as no doubt he knew very well that his people back home, the Wampanoags, also had good and bad individuals amongst them. Anyway, regardless of the exact details of just how many times Squanto crossed and recrossed the Atlantic and what the exact circumstances were of each of these instances, the point is that he'd done so for sure several times when he finally did return back to his home turf in 1619. And by that time, his people had been devastated by disease. Again, a regional Teotihuacan had happened while he was abroad. In fact, Thomas Dermer reported that the coastal areas of New England seemed almost uninhabited, whereas just a few years ago they had been full of bustling, thriving communities. Patuxet itself was completely empty. Squanto and Dermer went inland looking for other Wampanoags. 
they eventually found Massasoit, a Wampanoag sachem or chief, who told them how over the last three years, sickness had swept through the area. And modern scholars have differing opinions on exactly what the sickness may have been. Some think it may have even been more than one specific disease. Who knows? These sorts of things were so common whenever Indians made first contact with Europeans that it's hard to say for sure. One that we know from other cases was particularly brutal on the Indians was smallpox, but certainly there were plenty of other diseases that caused mass die-offs of Native peoples as well. Massasoit's community had been reduced from several thousand to fewer than 100, and the Wampanoag Confederation overall had been depleted from perhaps as many as 20,000 people to ultimately fewer than 1,000. So it's just an astonishingly bad death rate, something in the neighborhood of 95% or so. Massasoit seems to have been feeling, understandably, very vulnerable to rival tribes that lived further inland, because the rival tribes further inland hadn't been hit as badly by the diseases, because they had had much less contact with Europeans. And so the fact that Massasoit's Wampanoag were so depopulated would make them very vulnerable. In other words, it threatened the balance of power amongst the different tribal confederations in the area. Now, somehow or other, Squanto became essentially a captive of Massasoit, who didn't really trust him because of his long time spent with the English. It seems, though, that during this time, Squanto began telling Massasoit stories of the technology and the powers of the English and trying to kind of encourage him to make friends with the English. At least in part, Squanto would have been doing this for his own sake, because if the Wampanoag became friends of the English, Squanto would be in a good position, owing to his knowledge of them and of their language, and perhaps it would not only gain Squanto leverage with the English, but would reduce Massasoit's suspicions of him. Within a few months of Squanto ending up in the custody of Massasoit, they got word that a group of English had shown up at Patuxet. These, of course, were the pilgrims. Massasoit would ultimately decide to try to ally with the English against his longtime enemies, the Narragansett, and yet he would never fully trust Squanto. Now, the people who get known to history as the Pilgrims were an English dissenting religious sect who were Puritans, but they were a specific subgroup of Puritans. The difference between Pilgrims and the kind of larger mainstream Puritans was not over fundamental theology or anything like that. It was simply over tactics. The mainstream Puritans, the non-Pilgrim Puritans, believed that the best way to purify the Church of England, to fix what they thought was wrong with it, namely kind of lingering Catholicism and so on, was to work from within the Church, to fix it from within, whereas the Pilgrims were separatists. They thought the best thing to do was to establish a completely separate Church organization outside of the Church of England. Back in England, the separatists had faced persecution for their views, and they had eventually moved to Holland, and there they had been tolerated, but they didn't exactly thrive, in part because Dutch guild restrictions kept them out of good jobs, but also they themselves were troubled by how tolerant and how diverse Holland was increasingly becoming. 
And the fact of the matter is that the Pilgrims wanted a community run and dominated by people like them. They really didn't do well with large numbers of quote-unquote others around them. And so they decided to leave Holland and throw the dice on the New World to form a new colony in North America, which the British government had only recently begun to get seriously involved in. And so they were able to make enough business and political deals in Britain to get the British government to ultimately okay their expedition. And in September of 1620, the Pilgrims left for America, and within about two months, they reached Cape Cod on the Massachusetts coast, and Massachusetts was probably not their intended destination, but with it being November, they decided they couldn't really go much further before the weather would start to get really bad. So they kind of looked around a little bit in Massachusetts and decided to start a settlement at a place that had some years back been named Plymouth by Captain John Smith. And again, this is the site of what used to be Squanto's Patuxet Village. The Pilgrims quickly realized that the area they were settling upon had, up until very recently, been an Indian community. It had cleared land, there were buildings still standing, but no people. And again, what had happened was a nasty epidemic had come through in in the years just before the Pilgrims showed up and wiped out the people who were there. Some disease or diseases from the old world to which the Native Americans had absolutely no prior exposure and thus no immunity had really done a number on the people there. Interestingly, the Puritans, also not surprisingly, would have seen this as divine favor on their part, kind of clearing these Indians out of the way, and look, we kind of already have a spot set up for you with no people on it. That's somewhat already kind of set up to have a community there. Surviving Wampanoags also would have interpreted what is what had happened to them in a supernatural way. They would have seen it as their own gods kind of turning away from them or no longer favoring them or protecting them or what have you. Understand that neither group really had much in the way of an understanding of uh, germs from a scientific perspective and anything like that. The pilgrims were not prepared properly for what they had to deal with in the New World, and so despite being able to move into a piece of ground that had already been somewhat cleared and settled and farmed and so on, so had had less to do than if it was genuinely virgin wilderness, they still had a very rough time. They just weren't prepared for all of this. They were mostly people who didn't really have much experience with farming back in Europe. They also were not the sort of people who had much experience dealing with forests and wilderness and so on either. So they really struggled. The weather, they themselves got sick as they were malnourished. They hadn't understood that despite the fact that Massachusetts is actually on a lower latitude than England, it has, for a variety of reasons, much colder winters, and they weren't properly prepared for that. And so the death rate for the pilgrims over their first winter was actually about 50%. In the spring, Massasoit's group began observing the English frequently, and the pilgrims got worried, so they hauled some cannon in from the Mayflower and kind of built a little makeshift stockade, or at least started to build something like that, worried that the Indians might come in and attack, not understanding that the Indians also were in a vulnerable spot from depopulation, just as the pilgrims were after that first winter. Eventually, Massasoit decided to send a single envoy into the Pilgrim community to make first contact, and he decided to send just one guy unarmed to really try to make things not look threatening. And it's, I think, important and revealing that 
though Squanto was by far the most fluent in English among all of all these Wampanoags, that Massasoit did not initially send Squanto in. Instead, he sent another guy, Samoset, who was in fact a visiting Abenaki chief from kind of modern-day Maine, who spoke some English, though much less so than Squanto. That was who Massasoit decided to send in to make initial contact, which I think kind of reveals how he really wasn't sure he could trust Squanto. So, on March 17, 1621, Samoset walked alone and unarmed into the Pilgrim settlement and shocked the Pilgrims by right away speaking to them in what Charles Mann describes as broken but understandable English. After a fairly positive and peaceful interaction, five days later on March 22nd, a group of five Indians, this time including Massasoit himself and also Squanto, came in to parlay. However, when the pilgrims noticed that there was a much larger group of Indians waiting off in the distance, they became frightened and pulled into their makeshift fort, and a standoff ensued with both sides suddenly very paranoid, a standoff that was only broken when one of the pilgrim leaders offered himself as a hostage to go stay with Massasoit's brother outside of town while Massasoit and his entourage parlayed with the pilgrims. And this began a fairly friendly relationship between the Pilgrims and the Wampanoags. Both needed allies. Both were in a vulnerable position. And they decided that they would work with each other against the larger Indian groups a little further inland who perhaps might be more threatening. And in the ensuing months, Squanto particularly would work very hard to ingratiate himself with the Pilgrims and was pretty successful at this. So much so that when he was eventually taken captive by a hostile group of Wampanoags, the pilgrims actually sent a party out to rescue him. It's kind of interesting to think about that Squanto, supposedly the noble savage in the traditional view of this story, was undoubtedly more well-traveled and worldly than most of the pilgrims. He wasn't just more knowledgeable about food acquisition in North America. Furthermore, some historians believe that one of his most famous contributions to the Pilgrims' food acquisition program, which of course was showing them to use fish to fertilize corn, this may have been something that wasn't even a Wampanoag practice previously, but may in fact have been something that Squanto picked up while he was in Europe. Who knows? Other sources are certain that it was something the Wampanoags have been doing for a long time. Now, in, in this interaction, what Massasoit was doing was he had decided to negotiate with the Pilgrims and to try to reach an alliance with them because of his own power politics situation. His society had faced massive depopulation due to disease. Meanwhile, their traditional enemies, the Narragansett, had not been very hard hit by epidemics. Massasoit had reason to believe that the Pilgrims had a large and powerful nation across the sea that would back them up, but at least at the moment, they themselves were few in number and had barely made it through their first winter, so in a way, they wouldn't have looked very threatening to Massasoit at the time, who, even with his people so badly hit by disease, still had more people on his side than the pilgrims had on theirs. Now, Massasoit's strategy to make friends with the pilgrims in order to get them to have his back against other tribes like the Narragansett was a strategy that actually would work quite well overall in the short run. But in the long run, well, let's just say it kind of worked out like John Maynard Keynes's long run, quite literally for most of the Wampanoag, because the Pilgrims, their settlement paved the way 
for later and much, much larger waves of English colonization to the area, which would ultimately have disastrous results for all of the native peoples of the region that would eventually become known as New England. But for the time, all seemed good, as the Wampanoag and the Pilgrims made an alliance in which they promised not to attack each other and to come to each other's aid if either were attacked. And during these dealings, Massasoit even formally granted the Pilgrims the site of the former Patuxet village. The Pilgrims, of course, interpreted all of this. Their stumbling onto an empty native village, their finding of a cleared area that was depopulated, and finding of a few friendly Indians, some of whom spoke English, all as evidence of divine favor, as providence on their side, rather than something that was just the result of massive disease epidemics brought by Europeans, and seeing Squanto's knowledge of English as being the result of him having been abducted and shipped across the ocean. The whole notion, though, of divine favor to the pilgrims has become a real integral part of the story that the the pilgrims and the first Thanksgiving and all that plays, especially in the kind of more conservative denomination of the American civil religion ever since. The Indians in this kind of right-wing civil religion version of the story are usually portrayed as being kind of noble savages whose job ultimately was to pave the way and facilitate the English settlement in New England, but then ultimately to kind of be shuffled out of the way when it became necessary to do so. The more kind of left-wing revisionist view since maybe the 60s or 70s or thereabouts has played up the idea of the Indians as victims, which they clearly were in a bunch of ways, no question. However, the problem with that version of the story is that it often tends to, perhaps not intentionally, dehumanize the Indians in a different way, by kind of robbing them of their agency and depicting them as simple passive victims rather than as subjects in their own right. Because the truth was, when you really try and get a sense of the Indian point of view and understand what was going on and how they were responding to events, that yes, in a lot of ways, the Indians were victims, but on the other hand, they were also intelligent people who were pursuing their goals as best they could, given the circumstances and given the knowledge that they had available to them at the time. They may have been victims in a lot of ways, but they were not passive objects. Anyway, the stories about Squanto showing the pilgrims things like how to be much more successful at food production in North America are basically true. And definitely without his assistance, things might have gone much worse for the pilgrims from that point on. And at least as important, if not even more so than Squanto's food production tips, was his ability to continue to act as an interpreter and a guide for the pilgrims in the area. And of course, we've got to briefly mention the first Thanksgiving, even though in this version of the story, it's not terribly important. It's not that much of a centerpiece. It was really kind of inflated to be more than it was by later generations of Americans trying to create this almost mythological past. But very little detail is actually known about the first Thanksgiving, not even the exact date in which it occurred. But it was apparently a celebration in kind of the late summer, early fall of 1621, intended by the pilgrims primarily to thank God, of course, for getting them through things so far and for providing them with the wonderful vacant Indian village and the friendly, helpful English-speaking Indian who assisted them in actually producing enough food 
and Massasoit showed up with a big entourage to participate in the feast, and in that way it was also kind of a celebration of the alliance that had been created between the Wampanoag and the Pilgrims. But as time went on and the complex politics of the region continued to evolve, it seems like Squanto may have been playing his own Machiavellian game all the while, trying to gather together surviving Wampanoags in the area in order to rebuild Patuxet near the Pilgrim community of Plymouth. And he also seems to have been scheming to leverage his pull with the English to possibly unseat Massasoit and gain the position for himself. And Massasoit seems to have figured out the plotting. He had always been suspicious of Squanto anyway. And at one point, he got really angry at Squanto because Squanto had been apparently spreading false rumors among the pilgrims that the Indians were planning on attacking, perhaps trying to leverage everything against Massasoit. And when Massasoit got wind of this, he demanded the pilgrims turn Squanto over to him to face execution. The pilgrims, in their response, actually said, wow, what he did was really wrong, and and they kind of admitted that Squanto had been plotting, but they ultimately said that Squanto was so important to their society's continued functioning that they could not turn him over, and so they refused to send Squanto over to Massasoit. And kind of from that point on, Squanto basically had to stay with the pilgrims all the time for his own safety. Again, he's in this position of kind of a man without a country. Now, while on his way back from accompanying the pilgrims as an interpreter to parlay with some Indians out on Cape Cod, Squanto fell ill and died within just a few days. Some have speculated since that the Wampanoag may have poisoned him. They certainly, Massasoit and his entourage, wanted to get Squanto, but I don't know of any specific evidence that that's what happened other than a little bit of circumstantial. When Squanto passed away, he was somewhere in his late 30s or early 40s, depending on which date you believe he was born. The pilgrim leader, William Bradford, referred to Squanto as a special instrument of God sent to help the pilgrims. One wonders how Squanto himself would have seen the whole thing. The pilgrims claimed that on his deathbed, Squanto said something about how he really wanted to end up going to the white man's god. Again, who knows if he really said that or not, or whether the pilgrims just kind of put the words in his mouth that they had wanted to hear. The peace that had been negotiated between the Wampanoag and the English would last long beyond the death of Squanto and would in fact endure for about 50 years before finally the Wampanoag went to war when they felt the English were encroaching on them and their society simply too much. And obviously, in the long run, the Wampanoag would lose. It's important to humanize the Indians in our understanding of them, I think, because they were complex, unique individuals, like any other people, with sort of a complex mixture of motivations behind the different actions that they pursued and the choices that they made. Just because they were behind the Europeans in some important areas of technology doesn't mean that they were stupid. And they certainly were anything but naive when it came to things like the world of power politics. Ultimately, though, more than anything else, it would be the microbes that would prove the most important factor in tilting the balance of power towards the Europeans. Author Charles Mann puts it this way, quote, The people of the first light could avoid or adapt to European technology, but not to European germs. Their societies were destroyed by weapons their opponents could not control and did not even know they possessed. Even Squanto himself, unless, of course, the conspiracy theories of him being poisoned are correct, succumbed to disease. Squanto is one of those historical characters whom I think would be very, very fascinating to be able to interview. I'd love to know 
what he really thought of all these things. I'd love to hear his perspective on his story, because all the sources we have about him are other people, basically Englishmen and Spaniards, talking about him. I'd love to know his perspective on all the crazy things he went through in his very, very eventful life. Because his life, as you've already gotten a sense, and I tried to kind of streamline it a little bit here, and even so, his life is an incredibly complex story. On the one hand, being kidnapped and shipped across the ocean is obviously a horrible and traumatic thing to have to endure. On the other hand, had Squanto been back home in Patuxet between 1616 and 1619, odds are that he would have succumbed to the same epidemic that killed all of his kinsmen and all of his neighbors. On the other other hand, when he did return, he found himself in the awkward position of being a man without a country. And he seems to have tried to play the hand that he was dealt as best as he could, and he played it fairly skillfully for a while, until either disease or perhaps Wampanoag poison caught up with him too. If you liked what you heard in this podcast, there are multiple ways you can help this show continue to exist, to improve, and grow. One is simply to spread the word about the Dangerous History Podcast in any way you can. Social media, online discussion boards, word of mouth, whatever but to help spread the word to people you think might appreciate it. Also consider leaving a review or a rating in podcast venues such as iTunes or Stitcher, and you can help the show financially several different ways. One of the best is to go to patreon.com slash profcj. Patreon, by the way, spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Patreon.com slash P-R-O-F-C-J. Sign up to support the show with a per-episode donation. If you sign up there for at least $1 per episode, and more is certainly appreciated, but for at least $1 per episode, I'll thank you by name in the next show that I record, and you'll have access to special, exclusive, bonus Dangerous History Podcast episodes via Patreon that are available nowhere else. So it's a win-win. You get some extra Dangerous History Podcast, and I get some help in keeping on, keeping on with the show. Also, if you're a supporter of the show on Patreon at a dollar or more per episode, you are eligible to join the private Facebook group entitled Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors. By the way, side note, if your name is different on Patreon from what it is on Facebook, please do contact me if you apply to join the group to let me know who you are on Patreon so that I can verify you're a supporter and then I'll be happy to let you into the group. You can go to the show's donate page, profcj.org slash donate, to find other ways to help the show out financially, including PayPal and Bitcoin donations. And of course, you can help the show by purchasing items from Amazon by first going through any of the Amazon affiliate links on my website before you do your shopping. And if you do that and buy anything from Amazon, the Dangerous History Podcast will get a small commission from Amazon at no additional cost to you. One final thing you can do if you want to help out the show is to check out the official Dangerous History Podcast Amazon wish list, where you can order items to help me help the show. And if you do that, I'll thank you by name in the next show that I make after receiving your item. Make sure to check out DangerousHistoryPodcast.com if you haven't already to find the show notes for this and every other DHP episode, which usually include lots of links and things like that. Good stuff. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.